0: Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you.
1: To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber
0: or making a donation at Mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end.org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you
1: and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive.
0: Mormon, Mormon Discussion and, and its lineup of great, great programs. programs, helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, onto what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, grateful for this chance to be with you. Today, I want to talk about the absurdities in Mormonism. And I created a list recently. You can, if you go to the episode notes of this episode, you'll see a link to that list. Essentially, what I want to do is I want to show how irrational Mormonism is. The way we think about rational thinking or irrational thinking is that Anytime I am presented with two options for why something is happening, and one option requires more allowances or more conjecture, then in that instance, if I choose the answer that requires more conjecture or more allowances, I'm being irrational. Now, the example here was given to me, uh, but here's a good example. If I'm out in a cabin in the woods and I hear tapping on the tin roof, it is simply more rational to conclude a raccoon than a space alien. A raccoon requires very little allowances, very little conjecture. I simply have to come up with how the raccoon got up there. For a space alien, I need lots of allowances. Space aliens exist. Space aliens picked this spot in the woods. Uh, space aliens for some reason are interested in my cabin they're interested in me like lots of conjecture lots of allowances now you may still in fact choose to believe the noise was caused by a space alien yet nearly anyone on the planet would agree the raccoon explanation is more rational than the alien one anytime you choose the solution with more conjecture You're being irrational. Any time in your life, like all of us go through our daily life, and we are generally looking for the answer that has the least amount of allowances, the least amount of conjecture. We had Spencer write on the podcast many months ago, and he talked about this idea that if my glass of water on the table gets knocked over, uh, it either could be my cat. My cat knocked it over. He's he's the only other life form in the house, or uh, an alien uh, knocked it over, or even the alien used telepa- uh, telepathic powers to uh, insert into the cat the intention to knock over the glass. And again, it's just reasonable to say the cat knocked over the glass. It becomes unreasonable, irrational improbable to suggest that an alien got involved when that's not necessary. Now, we all recognize in life sometimes the less rational thing is what happens. But none of us go into a situation expecting or automatically going to the less rational answer until more evidence shows up showing that that's actually what happened. Every single time you choose the answer that requires more conjecture you are being irrational now i reached out to listeners i had a list here of maybe you know maybe 30 of these i came up with myself 40 of these i came up with myself but we've about 118 data points that show that mormonism on each one of these instances to make the faithful believing perspective work You have to take an answer that requires more conjecture. It is less reasonable. So let's start. Number one, that Moroni traveled at a minimum between Palmyra, New York and Manti, Utah, around 420 AD, traversing wild and harsh landscapes alone across distances essentially unheard of by a single traveler in a relatively short amount of time. When we look at the primitive state of this country, the foreign landscapes, the harsh wilderness, we have in the history uh, history books one or two instances of somebody traveling that kind of distance. And one of those two instances is, is still believed by most experts to be uh, a made-up story by that traveler. So to have Moroni traveling a distance that is historically rare, if not unheard of, uh, becomes insane. And then you have to add to that, there's the possibility that if we locate the Book of Mormon story in Central or South America, we have to have Moroni not only traveling to Palmyra to bury the plates, but also to Manti, Utah, to dedicate the Manti, Utah temple site. That is Brigham Young who uh, made that claim uh, as prophet of the church that Moroni is the one who blessed the site of the Manti Utah temple. Number 2 that Nephi built a ship that traveled across the ocean. Uh, I would suggest everybody go back to John Larson's Mormon Expression podcast and it is the episode the episode titled uh, Transoceanic Voyage. Uh, you will see just how absurd it is for Nephi to have built a ship uh, with such little manpower that would have involved such um, such high tech uh, technology to be able to cross an ocean. And again, I hear apologists say, "Well, if it was this, and well, if it was that." Every time you go, but if you make an allowance for this, that is conjecture. Every time you make an allowance, well, it could be if you let that happen. It's conjecture. Again. As you go through this list, keep in mind how much conjecture you actually have to have. Number three, that the Jaredites built multiple barges carrying animal life and food and seeds and made it across the ocean without regard for what it takes to make such a voyage and to care for the items aboard the vessels. There is honeybees, for instance, is one of the things that we're told are on there. Um, there were There was a cork in a hole of some sort, on the top and the bottom, indicating that this vessel would have flipped over in its voyage uh, and that these people needed a way to be able to open both ends to get air in. Imagine everybody in one of these uh, tight-like-a-dish barges as it flips over with animal feces, with all of these different uh, seeds and certain kinds of uh, insects such as bees, with other kinds of animals for... Uh, food as well as to get to the other side to have it it again becomes absurd, and to make it work, you have to make extra conjecture, extra allowances. Number four, the Lamanites killed two hundred and thirty thousand Nephite soldiers in one day near the hill camora In comparison, the Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest battle in American history, had three thousand six hundred casualties using modern weapons and artillery. Also noting that there is zero evidence of such a battle having ever taken place. So we don't have any kind of uh, body, skeleton, uh, skeletal remains found in the Hill Camora, near the Hill Kimora. There have been attempts to use certain uh, LIDAR or different kind of technology to, to look into that hill. Uh, People have been over that hill a a thousand times with metal detectors trying to find things. There's nothing. And in these instances, what apologists do is they come in and say, well, you know, let's, let's make the allowance that Moroni is embellishing the numbers. But again, every time you make an allowance, every time you ask for some extra wiggle room, you are adding conjecture to the point. Number five, that a civilization, the Nephites, lived during essentially the same time period as the Roman Empire, was twice the size of the Roman Empire, yet left no evidence of their existence behind. Of all the things that the Nephites were said to be using, that they had in their possession, that they had access to, none of that, none of that seems to exist. Finding evidence of the Roman Empire, not a problem. Finding evidence of Nephites and Lamanites doesn't exist. Number six, Shiz, a Book of Mormon combatant, had his head cut off and he still raised up. quote, And it came to pass that after Coriantumr had smitten off the head of Shiz, that Shiz raised up on his hands and fell. And after that, he had struggled for breath. He died. Now, if you understand anything about medical science, if you understand anything about uh, how things work, uh, chopping somebody's head off and them trying to raise up and then struggling for breath is unheard of. Now, apologists, again, come in and say, well, there's this one incident or two where somebody had their head cut off and they essentially, their body seizured up. And is it seizured up uh, that they, they pushed up onto their hands a little bit? Well, again, the rarity of that And the need for saying like, hey, in the whole history of humankind, this happened once or twice. So it could have happened here, again, is conjecture. If you need your instance to be the rare possibility it could happen if you make these extra little allowances, you are begging. You're not taking the most rational answer. Number seven, Nephi cuts off the head of Laban, yet somehow avoids getting blood on Laban's clothes, which Nephi in turn undresses the dead body of Laban as it's pouring blood out all over the ground and places the clothes on himself, thereby fooling Zoram, the servant of Laban, for an extended period of time. Think about this. Zoram is fooled by Nephi, despite whatever height difference, weight difference, voice difference, Again, Nephi somehow gets away without having any blood on his clothes. This all seems to add up to a highly unlikely story that requires way more conjecture than the answer that it simply didn't happen. So, when we grasp that Nephi has to fake the right voice, he just has to luckily be about the same height, luckily be about the same weight, that he somehow avoids getting the blood on the clothes, again, it becomes uh, irrational to take the solution that, ah, oh, it happened anyway. He's not just fooling Zoram for 10 minutes. He fools Zoram at uh, the residence of Laban or the, wherever the office of Laban is, um, enough that Zoram has time to go get the brass plates and then to follow Nephi all the way out of the city where, they meet, where he meets up with his brothers. Number eight, that while those of African heritage could not hold the priesthood prior to 1978, that, that our leadership had taught that those folks were uh, cursed, they were less valiant in the premortal life, that God had placed on them a curse of skin color. The, the trouble with that is that if any of us do uh, have our, our mouth swabbed, the, the skin inside our cheeks swabbed, and we have our DNA testing done. Almost all of us, if not all of us, have some degree of African lineage in our DNA. Those are our ancestors. So my point being is that while church leaders pointed to people of dark skin as being cursed, the reality is that everybody who had light skin also had African lineage in them as well as the very prophets standing at the pulpit who were teaching those things. And it also, you have to add on top of that, the idea that here we are in 2019, we understand skin pigment. We understand why skin, skin pigment color uh, changed uh, in various cultures. We don't know why necessarily it existed, if it was helpful to uh, those who were out uh, in the sun more, those directly uh, closer to the sun uh, whether it was a protectant against certain climates we don't know that although we although most experts have uh, opinions on that we do know that skin pigment color is not something that's a magic spell placed on somebody but instead is how our dna has our skin automatically come out based on who our parents are and what our lineage is. And the further you get away from having a parent of dark skin, or the moment you introduce a parent of dark skin, how skin pigment is affected. We understand all of that. The moment you say, I still want to believe that God, in spite of all of our knowledge about skin pigment and how that works, that God magically made a certain group of people, their skin pigment change, that becomes irrational. Number nine, that God was okay with his modern prophets marrying and having sex with children as young as 14, 15, 16 years old. That it was God's idea, even as Joseph proposedly enacts polygamy with deeply unhealthy and unethical behavior within it. I would suggest anybody go look at the Uh, Lucy Walker episode I did a couple of years ago, that episode alone will speak to how unhealthy uh, Joseph Smith enacted polygamy, breaking all the rules of section 132. And then if you add on top of that, the recent episode I did uh, regarding Nancy Rigdon, and you begin to just sense how unethical Joseph Smith was, often approaching young girls who he had Uh, finagled to get them to work in his home or to live in his home and then to approach them uh, wanting a extramarital relationship. Number 10, that God commanded his prophet to marry and have sex with women who were already married to other men, otherwise known as polyandry. Number 11, the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. Is, is taught to us, it is said to us, to contain the writings of the brother of Jared regarding the last days. Now, that sealed portion was believed to take up a third to half of the gold plates. If we take a third to half and we move it into, and we can we can guess at this, because we know that there were the 116 pages and those were lost. We have the Book of Mormon that we have today, and then we have this sealed portion we say is missing. So we can, with some certainty, mathematically figure out how long that sealed portion would be. That sealed portion would approach the size of the King James uh, Bible. It would be somewhere near about two-thirds to the full size of the Bible. The moment we understand that and we go like, that's all one author, the brother of Jared, writing to us about the last days. Now, is it Does it require more conjecture to say, look, in the writing of scripture, there is this missing piece of scripture that we have no evidence actually exist. And in that, this sealed portion we never translated is one author almost as long as the entire Bible. Or does it require more or less conjecture to say like, oh, this is all just made up. So again, to say, look, I know we don't have it. I know the critics say it doesn't exist, but it does exist. It is written by one author. It is almost as long as the entire Bible. Uh, Someday it'll come out. I told you so. That is irrational. Number 12, that Joseph Smith states in his 1832 earliest personal journal account that he only saw the Lord, and then later claims to have seen both the Father and the Son also noting that each account changes in the specific details of how old he is what he went into the grove for what what he was told uh in the grove um these uh, what the climate was like in palmyra Uh, there are lots of little details that contradict or seem to disagree with each other so that's the 1832 earliest first vision account in joseph smith's own journal versus what we find out in the 1838, 1842 accounts, and even juxtaposed against the uh, 1835 account. Number 13, that in spite of most experts and scholars holding that Isaiah was written by multiple authors, and that one of those authors, 3rd Isaiah, wrote after Lehi left Jerusalem, still the brass plates contained pieces of this 3rd Isaiah, even in spite of him writing this post-Lehi's journey. Uh, That again becomes uh, absurd if you accept the experts. Number 14, that Lehi's family is strangely referring to themselves as Christians before anybody else on the planet refers to themselves as Christians. Before the term is even understood, before anybody really even has a claim that there's going to be a Jesus... The Lehites, the Nephites, have these terms and understandings about who Christ is and about being Christians more than anybody else on the planet in any of our historical records. Number 15, the Book of Mormon names animals that were in Joseph Smith's day. These are animals Joseph Smith would have said like, oh, these were around when I was born and I assume these have been around forever. These animals that were in Joseph Smith's day in his contemporary landscape, minus elephants, but not believed by almost all experts to have existed in the Book of Mormon times, it appears to be anachronistic. Notice the amount of conjecture needed for this faithful view. Horse doesn't mean horse. Maybe they were in a small area. Maybe they died off. Maybe this, maybe that. But the point being is that Joseph Smith names a ton of animals that he expected to be in our landscape 1,000 years before he was present on the landscape, and which those animals, the evidence is sparse and non-existent that those animals existed for the Book of Mormon people in Book of Mormon times. It is anachronistic, and there is a ton of conjecture required in order to make it work for the faithful view. Number 16, in spite of Nephi and the Jaredites, in spite of the Nephites and the Jaredites taking seeds of every kind with them on their oceanic voyages, and at least one of those records stating that those seeds grew in abundance, there is no sign of any old world crops that would have been expected on those voyages found in America and science showing they date to the right entry time period. In other words, Nephi and Lehi and their families and the Jaredites took seeds with them so that they would be able to plant things that they understood and knew about in the new land. When they get there, they plant their seeds and we're told those seeds grew in abundance. These these plants, these crops from the old world, as they grew in abundance, they should have entered the culture. We should now, in 2019, be able to find signs of multiple crops from the Old World having entered the New World at the time period that both the Jaredites and the Nephite families landed, and find evidence that those crops existed here and not just there. We don't. Number 17, that the Jaredite barges would have a cork on the top and bottom, indicating this vessel could be flipped over during the trip. We talked about that. Um, Imagine all passengers, livestock, seeds, honeybees, flipped over and over, even if only from time to time. And consider the verse, quote, Behold, thou shalt make a hole in the top and also in the bottom. And when thou shalt suffer for air, thou shalt unstop the hole and receive air. And if it be so that water come in upon thee, behold, ye shall stop the hole that ye may not perish in the flood. Now, let me give you a, a thought here. There's only real two rational reasons for why water would come in. And they're not even rational. But there are two answers that come off quick off the believing Mormon's tongue when they're presented with this problem. The first one is that as the thing is flipping up and down over and over, they do not have a clue which way is up and which way is down. I had a former NASA employee uh, tell me this idea. And immediately I thought, and this person had flown airplanes. They built an airplane and they flew airplanes. I said, I said to this person, I said, come on. I said, you understand how gravity works. Wherever you stand up and your feet are on the ground, that is down. There's, it's impossible for you to be on the ceiling trying to figure out which way's up and which way's down. Gravity automatically places you on the downside of an object. If you are on a boat flipping over and over, you are always going to fall to the bottom. Even if the boat flips upside down, and now the top is down and the bottom is up, you are now going to hit the top of the boat. Gravity will not let you be confused about which way is up and which way is down. Hence, the water coming in, it makes absolutely no sense to say they were given both holes and were confused at times by being tossed around at which way was up and which way was down. The second response is that things would be turbulent and uh, waves would be crashing And when they opened this cork or this sealed hole, that water would come in. Let me make it clear. If it's turbulent, you know it, you feel it. You quickly understand what the risk is in opening the hole. You generally wait until there is less turbulence, until you are being tossed less to and fro in the water before you would unplug the hole. You would quickly know. What kind of weather outside is conducive to you opening that plugged hole? You wouldn't need to unplug it and go, oh my gosh, water's coming in. I better plug it back up. You would feel the kind of turbulence it took for there to be risk of that hole filling in and what you should wait for in order for the risk to be lower. So either of those seem absurd. Number 18, The Book of Mormon mentions that the barges could not have windows as they would be dashed to pieces. Quote, dashed to pieces. This is long before glass windows were invented. So what material could be dashed to pieces? And again, if you listen to the apologist, you have to make allowances. You have to make room for conjecture. Number 19, that while Joseph Smith believed he was translating particular Egyptian papyri, into the book of Abraham, practically no evidence exists pointing to this papyri as the book of Abraham. And in fact, the actual evidence points to it being a standard funerary text, completely disconnected to the time of Abraham and completely disconnected to Abraham himself. This is in spite of Joseph Smith telling us that the book of Abraham was translated from scrolls written, quote, by his own hand, meaning Abraham, upon papyrus, unquote. Written by his own hand, and that turns out to be absolutely not what it is. And in order for you to make it work, go listen to to John Gee or Kerry Molstein. In order to make it work, you have to add in so much conjecture, so much allowances, that again, it becomes absurd. Number 20, why Joseph Smith, living in a two-room house with his whole family, In Palmyra, New York, could be woken up three times in one night to receive instruction with light brighter than the noonday sun, and no one else in his family, which by the way, there were multiple boys sleeping in that bed, no one else in the family seemed to notice. Joseph is in a bedroom, in a bed with all of his brothers. Moroni comes in three times during the night, so much so that Joseph is tired and exhausted the next day. Now remember, if Joseph is simply dreaming a dream and his body is asleep, Joseph is not going to be exhausted. If, on the other hand, Joseph is literally awake seeing a vision, then the exhaustion makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is how that happens three times while his brothers stay asleep and do not wake up. Now, again, the apologists come in and go, somehow Moroni put a magic spell on the brothers, so they don't wake up. Uh, It was a dream, and somehow Joseph still gets exhausted. Whatever reasoning you come up with, it still requires more conjecture, more allowances to make that work. Number 21, Joseph Smith sealed himself to 22 other women before sealing himself to his first wife, Emma. Number 22, that Joseph lied to Emma, and at other times withheld and obfuscated his relationships to other women to keep Emma as much in the dark as he could. Number 23, this religion attempts to control the underwear you wear and the decibel at which you laugh. Number 24, in spite of Joseph Smith's five translation productions, the Book of Mormon, Book of Abraham, Book of Moses, inspired Bible translation, and their Kinderhook plates, Containing significant contextual errors and plagiarism from available sources contemporary to Joseph Smith, one must still believe that God was behind this inspired compilation. See, what you probably don't know, at least maybe many of you don't know, the Book of Mormon has obvious uh, plagiarism of concepts, sentence structure, and ideas from sources contemporary to Joseph Smith. The book of Abraham does too, as well as we already know the uh, significant contextual errors in terms of what Joseph claimed that product was versus what it is. The book of Moses borrows heavily from Matthew and Luke. The inspired Bible translation borrows heavily or plagiarizes from Adam Clark's commentary. And the Kinderhook plates were a complete scam That was attempted on joseph smith that at least in part he fell for i also should add that we now know that with several of the concepts and ideas that are presented in the book of abraham that they are found and located in contemporary sources to joseph smith uh including either the book of jasher or book of josephus i can't remember which as well as other contemporary sources including adam clark's uh bible commentary And some of these may feel like they are a duplicate. They're not, although there is some overlap. Number 25, why does the church claim the inspired version of the Bible is a restoration of corrupted and lost parts of the Bible? Yet BYU itself acknowledges much of the inspired translation of the Bible is a direct plagiarism from Adam Clark's Bible commentary, a popular contemporary source to Joseph Smith's day. Number 26, the sun receives its light from the revolutions of Kolob. Quote, the sun borrows its light from Kolob through the medium of ka which is the grand key, or in other words, the governing power, which governs 15 other fixed planets or stars, as also Flois, or the moon, the earth and the sun in their annual revolutions, unquote. See, that doesn't make any sense. We live in 2019. We understand what the sun is, what it has its own energy, uh, how stars like the sun work. We, We know that this whole idea of getting its light from the revolutions of Kolob or borrowing its light from Kolob through the medium of ka i Rosh, which is the grand key, that it also governs uh, 15 other planets, uh, fixed planets or stars. That doesn't make any sense. It is as if God only comprehends the universe in a limited way that would be similar to how Joseph Smith comprehended the universe, or sources contemporary to Joseph understood how the universe worked. And that modern science, which God would be the author of all the laws of nature and science, that science would later disprove those ideas, making God seem essentially foolish and ignorant. That doesn't make any sense. And so again, to make it work, the easiest answer with no conjecture is to just say this is all bullshit. Now, the moment you go into each one of these and go, hold on, let's slow down, let's make an allowance here, let's leave some room for conjecture there, Again, it becomes irrational. Number 27, how the ancient author of the book of Moses seemingly borrowed heavily from Matthew and Luke's concepts and sentence structure, in spite of that ancient author not having actual access to the books of Luke and Matthew. Luke and Matthew are written a certain way. The book of Moses borrows heavily some exact phrases as well as deeply borrowing sentence structure from Matthew and Luke, certain story concepts, certain story lines. But the author of the book of Moses would not have had any access to the books of Luke and Matthew unless the author is Joseph Smith or someone contemporary to him. The apologist goes, well, if we make space that God's telling both the book of Moses author, as well as the authors of Luke and Matthew, the same ideas and sentence structure. Maybe this is a sentence structure of God. Maybe, maybe. Maybes are another indication of allowances and conjecture. If you just allow, maybe, what if, possibly, all conjecture, all extra allowances. Number 28, Joseph Smith was able to outrun his enemies on long distances loaded down with gold plates that, if they are some form of alloy, weigh between 40 and 60 pounds. And if they are gold, which is what Moroni said they were, we would be talking about over 200 pounds. It would be impossible to carry. Additionally, he struck not one but three of his assailants with such strong force as to stop them dead in their tracks while holding the absurdly heavy plates with a single arm. Topography shouldn't be ignored. The distance between the Hill Cumorah and the Smith home is approximately three miles. In Joseph Smith's day, that terrain was unbearably brutal, especially for someone running with a minimum of a 40 to 60 pound object. Number 30. If the plates were made of gold as Moroni imposed we have Joseph Smith telling us that Moroni told him these plates are made of gold. We also have Joseph Smith explaining that Moroni was concerned that Joseph would use the plates for financial gain. This only makes sense if the plates were made of gold. We know what gold would weigh. We understand roughly the size of the plates. A cubic foot of gold would weigh 17 times the 62 pounds that a cubic foot of water weighs, or about 1,054 pounds. Half a cubic foot would weigh more than 500 pounds. Now, the apologists come in and say, but these are leaves of gold. There's air in between. There's space in between. Granted, At a bare minimum, the plates would weigh 200 pounds, an amount that is impossible to carry around. Number 31, that the entire human race began with two people in Jackson County, Missouri. That this was the location where our species began 6,000 years ago. That there was no death before the fall of Adam and that the event occurred a mere 6,000 years ago. Again, apologists come on and say, yeah, but in this magical garden that we have no evidence actually existed, maybe death didn't happen inside that magical bubble, but did happen outside the bubble. And if we allow room that maybe the 6,000 years isn't actually what Joseph Smith taught, and maybe if we allow room that parts of the story are myth or embellished, and maybe if we allow room... See, it becomes absurd. Number 32... All of the men set apart as prophets, seers, and revelators at that given time were fooled by a con artist, Mark Hoffman, who sold them forged documents and even tried to defend the forged documents as authentic. The same men were also unable to foresee the con artist's murder plot. You see, we have prophets, seers, and revelators who claim to speak directly to God and have the ability to give us information directly from God. Yet somehow God was unable to tell them that these documents were fake and they were unable to foresee that he was about to hurt people and murder people. Number 33, young men, stripling warriors, went to battle against a larger, more experienced army. They suffered wounds so severe that they fainted from blood loss, and yet not a single one of them died from the wound bleeding to death, died from infection such as gangrene or other kinds of infection, despite no antibiotics or disinfectant. Again, we are in a time period where There is not access to the medical wisdom or technology that is present today. And we are to believe that many of these young men suffered wounds so severe that they fainted from blood loss, yet not a single one died from a wound or from infection, and that somehow all 2,000 young men fighting up against a more experienced army, that not a single one was lost. That is absolutely absurd. Think in your brain. Think logically. If I take 2,000 lesser experienced young soldiers and place them in a battle with a larger, more experienced army, first off, the chances of the smaller, inexperienced army winning is slim to none. Second of all, it is impossible that not a single one of them is killed. That makes zero sense unless you make incredible allowances for incredible supernatural God magic. It doesn't make sense. Number 34, that modern prophets from the inception of the church have pointed to all Native Americans, as well as Polynesians and Mexicans and other tan-skinned islander islanders as descendants of the Lamanites. And yet modern geneticists agree that 98% of Native Americans have no Israelite DNA and that the other 2% of these people have Israelite DNA that does not enter their genetical code at the right time period. Number 35, that we are to trust and be confident in modern prophets' teachings that God condemns homosexual behavior while also recognizing how deeply inconsistent and contradictory modern leaders have been on explaining why God condemns homosexual behavior. If you go into the history of the church and you read all the things that church leaders have said on this issue, they have been deeply inconsistent and contradictory to each other. And yet we're supposed to trust them that on the ultimate end of the issue that they are right, not the case. It becomes again, irrational. Now, we're only at number 35. There's 118 of these. Let's go through a few more. I probably won't be able to get to them all. I will certainly leave the link up and you can look at it. Number 36, that ultimate truth and sacred principles are taught in the temple ceremony. Which ceremony was originally said to be unchangeable? It was given from God and could not be tampered with. And yet that ceremony has been changed multiple times over the years to the point where today's endowment ceremony and other ordinances barely represent the way that ceremony was done originally and includes things such as Brigham Young adding uh, the Adam God doctrine to the presentation at the veil or at least wanted to at the St. George Temple. So, when we understand that the temple ceremony Joseph Smith taught was given from God directly to Joseph and that it was eternal and unchanging, and in spite of that, LDS leaders have been so uncomfortable with the endowment over the years that they have multiple times adjusted and changed the ceremony. Additionally, that God's revealed Latter day Temple ceremony just happened to be overwhelmingly similar to the existing Masonic ceremonies already in practice in Joseph Smith's day. And that experts agree that Masonry does not go back further than the 15th century, that women know, and then add on top of that, women no longer covenant to obey their husbands. Initiatories are completely changed. The endowment has gone through many word changes, covenant changes, character changes, the language of the ceilings changed just recently. Uh, in an attempt to be more gender neutral. And the, the temple ceremony becomes a contradictory statement of saying that it is from God and is unchanging to saying like, oh, it has changed a whole hell of a lot. Keep in mind that women no longer covenant to obey their husbands in the temple. But again, temple ordinances never change and are inspired and eternal. Number 37, much of the social change in the church seems to come about due to the apostate voices. Those voices are excommunicated, and at the same time, many of the changes called for by their platforms are adopted and implemented with the church calling them revelation. Sam Young asked for a better approach to interviewing children. He's excommunicated, and the church implements a partial change. Kate Kelly and ordained women asked for a larger role for women and less sexism. She was excommunicated, and the church implements a partial change, and both with Sam and with Kate calls them revelation. John DeLynn and myself asked for more historical transparency and honesty. We're both exed from the church and the church implements a partial change, releasing the gospel topic essays, uh, choosing to be more honest and to pull back from being deceptive uh, to at least the extent that they had been. Number 38, the church's leaders claim that the church is experiencing incredible growth at times when the data points to a deep decline in growth and perhaps even loss in active members and in total numbers. Number 39. While we teach in principle that good behavior and repentance and faith is what makes us worthy of the celestial kingdom, the temple teaches us that it is remembering secret handshakes, certain signs and tokens, and certain phrases, and that's what permits us to enter the celestial kingdom. Number 40. Modern prophets assure us that the local leaders have the spirit of discernment, and yet a multitude of pedophiles, scam artists, and other kinds of serious abusers have been called into callings of bishop and stake president. This brings into deep concern issues of trust. Number 41. In spite of claims that males hold God's priesthood and are capable of healing, Modern prophets seem unwilling to spend any time in the Salt Lake City Children's Hospital. No one has observed children walking out healed from cancer after blessings. There is no recorded instance on record of a verifiable limb being restored. Priesthood power seems relatively non-verifiable and unobservable. Utah's health statistics are better in some areas and worse in others and seem to be in the range of normal. Even leaders seem to acknowledge such in their general conference talks where everyone who is terminally sick dies and faith not to be healed is the greater faith. We claim there's power in the priesthood and when we look to observe or verify that such is actually the case, there is zero evidence of such. Number 42. If the Melchizedek priesthood was used as the name of the Most High, in order to prevent overuse of the name of the Savior, then why are modern leaders suddenly insisting that we use the full name of the church and not the word Mormon? Are we not overusing the Savior's name by requiring such? Also, when you combine that with Gordon B. Hinckley used to teach us to use the word Mormon and to be proud of it, and now President Nelson teaching that the name Mormon offends God and is a victory of Satan, who who created the I Am a Mormon campaign? Who created the Mormon channel? Who created mormon.org? You see, our very own leaders contradict themselves in various teachings that apply to the name of the church. Number 43, we claim we are a living church where prophets who talk to God are present and yet no new scripture for 30 plus years and essentially no major revelation for over a 100 years. While we claim to be a living church, It appears, at least on a serious note, that God is essentially silent. Number 44, that God, who created our world, really had no idea about astronomy. When comparing the kingdoms of glory to the sun, the moon, and the stars, the moon is just reflected light and has no illumination on its own, and the combined brightness of the stars would far exceed the brightness of the single sun in our solar system. In other words, God in this case, as with many others, seems to teach the current understanding of his prophets rather than some greater truth. And that current understanding of those prophets also so happens to be false information with little evidence that he teaches truth beyond what his modern leaders would already know about their present world, or at least about their present world. Number 45, a second-hand source states that Joseph Smith said people live on the sun, and we have a first-hand account of Brigham Young teaching that men live on the moon. Such is absurd. Number 46, that God lives on a planet near a star named Kolob. Number 47, that three men, the three Nephites, walk the earth having not tasted of death and are busy about building the kingdom of God up to the present moment. Number 48, that a highly literate, Advanced civilization with agriculture, advanced weaponry, coinage, large-scale building projects, with a population numbering in the millions, vanished without a trace less than 2,000 years ago, supposedly from an area where we have archaeological evidence of other non-Book of Mormon-related civilizations dating back tens of thousands of years." Number 49. That in spite of the Drumlin Hill in New York being, quote, the Hill Cumorah, also the same hill as the Jaredite Hill Rama, where supposedly battles consisting of millions fighting with swords died, there are no skeletal remains in the hill. Apologists propose a solution of moving the hill to Central South America, which then adds long, unreasonable distances to the travels of Moroni, the Book of Mormon's final author. So regardless of where you place the hill Camorra, it simply makes the story absurd. And each way that you choose to pick, no pun intended, your hill to stand on, it comes with logical issues and irrational solutions. Number 50, that while Joseph Smith had the supernatural ability to use a seer stone to find lost items and to discern god's mind and will and to translate the book of mormon he seemingly couldn't use it to locate the lost 116 pages it seems irrational that the 116 pages weren't retranslated according to joseph's reasoning if he trans retranslates the 116 pages and the old ones reemerged and matched it would have proven he was a prophet if the old version reemerged and was in a different handwriting or had edits that showed the only changes in a different handwriting, then it would again show evidence that Joseph was a prophet and translating correctly. If someone was going to take the original 116 pages and going to alter them to try and show that Joseph Smith was a fraud, then those changes would be apparent. The only reason not to retranslate the original 116 pages or at least by far the only reasonable, rational reason not to retranslate the original 116 pages would be if Joseph knew it would come out differently from his own mind and hence very different from the original and thereby discredit him in the eyes of Martin Harris and others who had read the original. Number 51 that God would instruct Joseph to use the same seer stone for God's work that was seemingly used to scam people as a money digger and a scryer. You see, Joseph used to claim that he knew where Spanish treasure was buried in areas around Palmyra. Joseph would then get paid by people to point to where those people should dig. When they would dig, nothing would ever be found. It is simply fiction that there is Spanish treasure buried all over Palmyra and any of the reasoning Joseph uh, gave in terms of the uh, treasure being moved underground about guardian spirits and the like is extra conjecture and allowances. We're going to skip around a little bit here. I've got a few minutes left and I want to get to a few of these. How about the curse of Cain continuing through Ham? If Ham was white, then his wife needed to be black. Their offspring would only be 50-50, and the darker complexion would continue to diminish since all other incestuous family and offspring were white, right? What am I missing? Because if the flood was real, there should no longer be any distinguishing ultra-dark-skinned peoples, correct? You see, that's logic. That's rational thinking. Any way of making Dark skinned people exist after the flood when only one individual on the ark was dark skinned becomes absurd. Number 56. That Joseph Smith, with his own treasure seeking history and that of his family's history of treasure seeking, money digging, mysticism, and folk magic, having had no success at all at finding buried treasure, is charged in court on at least two occasions of fraud, being a disorderly person. And on top of that, just so happens to miraculously discover the burial place of an ancient gold treasure protected by another guardian spirit and then translate the said plates with the same rock that he used while treasure digging, reading what was presented on said rock. Again, irrational. Number 57, in spite of God's saying that polygamy is to raise up seed and it must be done only with virgin women and only after getting permission of the first wife, Joseph Smith seemingly breaks all of God's rules while still claiming to be doing God's work. Number 58, because both the Old Testament and the Book of Mormon speak of the Tower of Babel and that said story is coming from two entirely different peoples from two entirely different timelines, one must accept that there was a literal tower and that tower, and at that tower, God confounded all languages in spite of our modern understanding of how languages were derived and changed over time. Above and beyond that, this tower was built so tall so as to reach into heaven. Consider our understanding of the universe and how far it is to get above the atmosphere and how tall a building is in modern times, how tall buildings are built today with access to modern building materials and equipment, and then recognize that this story of a tower this tall becomes absurd, and to have God diverging languages because of it becomes irrational. Number 59, while Mormonism claims to have prophets who speak to God, there is essentially no idea or information put forth that seems to fit what a prophet should do, prophesy, a seer, seeing, and a revelator, receiving revelation, what those titles seem to claim. Let's skip ahead. Numbers 64. In 1886, John Taylor claimed that Jesus had visited him personally and said that no matter what, polygamy could never be ceased as a practice within the church only to have Wilford Woodruff in 1890 when pressures arise claiming Jesus wants the church to end polygamy. Number 65, that Wilford Woodruff in 1890 would claim uh, claim a revelation or claim at least uh, direction effectively ending polygamy only to privately be instructing a small number of saints that they are to continue polygamy at all cost. Number 71, God seemingly felt it was more important for his people to avoid coffee and tea than to warn them about boiling water or washing hands to prevent infection. And God seemingly is unconcerned with the many other things his people partake of that do deeper harm to the body, such as soda drinks. The word of wisdom that seemed to descend from heaven and promise health and vigor to all who lived it. The word of wisdom taught Mormons a century in advance to avoid tobacco. Except that contemporary sources such as Sylvester Graham's health code of the day also advocated uh, eating lots of fruits and vegetables, little to no meat, no coffee, tea, liquor, or tobacco. In other words, Joseph Smith's revelation for section 89 is essentially a plagiarism of other sources contemporary to Joseph Smith in that day. Nothing new, nothing dramatic coming from the mouth of God. God told the prophet, number 72, God told the prophet that we shouldn't drink hot drinks. So we don't drink coffee or tea, but we do drink hot chocolate because one of the brothers of the prophet once clarified that hot drinks means coffee and tea. So we also can't drink iced tea or iced coffee because they're coffee and tea, which are hot drinks. You see, that's absurd. Number 73 that while Joseph Smith taught that a patriarch in the modern church was the same office as evangelist in the ancient church all evidence points to these two titles being two very different things that we claim to have a restored structure Christ instituted with our corresponding 12 apostles but then don't acknowledge that the first presidency doesn't fit within that structure number 74 Joseph Smith reported receiving priesthood keys from both Elias and Elijah when in fact scholars agree that they are simply two different names for the same person. That Joseph misunderstood that those were two different people when in reality they are just a single person. Number 75. While Brigham Young adamantly taught that Adam was heavenly father, more recent leaders have denounced President Young's teaching casting doubt, on how we know when to trust the teaching of prophets. Brigham Young clearly taught he knew the teaching was true because it came via revelation. And it was also stated that many of the saints knew this teaching was true, that they knew by revelation as well. When in fact, we've now disavowed that teaching as false. That was number 76. Again, there's over a hundred and I think 18 of these. And you're welcome to see these by clicking on the notes. Uh, My point today being twofold. One is that the church being true in the way it claims to be true is absolutely uh, demonstrable. That such would be so irrational that you would have to believe in a crazy, crazy way to make it work. So Mormonism isn't true. But at the very least, could Mormonism be good? And I often had hoped that it could. And at some point I decided like it wasn't true and it wasn't good and it really had no desire to be good. And so because of such, I ended up having to become more and more vocal to the point where I put myself at risk for being excommunicated. And excommunicated I was and me and my house, my family resigned and we've all left and we're all happier now that we're on the outside. I know that Mormonism provides a certain level of comfort. I know that it provides a certain amount of good things, such as community and chances to serve. But it isn't on its own providing something that you can't get elsewhere. And as our family is left, we are happier. We are more stable. We are enjoying life. And we still have community and opportunities to serve. So if you're afraid to leave, if you're scared of leaving because you're afraid of what that means and what it says and what life looks like on the other side, I would simply say that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people leaving every year having learned the church isn't true and almost all of them report being as happy or happier than they were. That concludes our episode today. Uh, again, check out the list on the show notes for the podcast. You can see all of our podcast at Mormon Discussions with an S on the end, dot org. You can visit this podcast at mormondiscussionpodcast.org or MD Podcast, M as in Mary, D as in Donnie, podcast.org. Today's closing song is by Weird Alma. Weird Alma reached out to me and said, Hey, I've got this song. Uh, You're welcome to use it. And I took a listen to it. I really, really, really love it. I love all of Weird Alma's work, but this song was uh, a little above and beyond kind of the norm. It was just, it struck me as beautiful and hitting as he always does on some key things that the church could be better at. Do Some Good is the name (laughs) of the song by Weird Alma play the music
1: where will I go you wanna know where will I go away where will I go I don't know, but you don't get to say you could do some good with the name you have. You could really help the world. Turn a chapel into a shelter and you could really help the world. You always testify of what you feel. Well, how about something real? If you can do some good Then do some good Do some good With the name you have We are the sinners And we are unworthy We're too unclean to be seen in God's eyes Our Father's eyes But you, so revered That we stand when you enter Have said and done wicked things Mingled with Scripture You've kept other races from your holy places Massacred the innocent and called it atonement Forced your dominion on your precious women Gave your protection to those who hurt children Poison the meekest With fear and with lies And we can't criticize And you won't apologize Apologize You could do such good With the wealth you have You could really feed the world Turn a temple into a hospital You could really heal the world Testify of what you feel But how about something real? If you can do some good Then do some good Do some good Do some good good. With the name you have Oh no Where did they go Where did they go Away